I would like you to do two things. Number one, would you turn to Daniel chapter 6 or swipe there? Lord willing, this is our second to the last sermon in our series in Daniel. This is the last story we'll be looking at and uh, probably the most famous story we'll be looking at tonight. So that's the first thing. Turn to Daniel chapter 6. The second thing I want you to do is if you are taking notes on something somewhere tonight, if you're not taking notes, would you find a pen, if there's one in front of you, would you find a note or something that you can hang on to? And would you write down the words that we just sang? I am not alone. You will go before me. You will never leave me. I am not alone. You will never leave me. You will go before me. Maybe I just said those in two different orders. I'll leave you to write out which order you would like. The reason is this, because we are talking about hostility and persecution and pressure and difficulty and all of the things that you have, will, or are facing in your life. Okay? Daniel will face a literal lion's den, but many of us, all of us, are, will, or have experienced our own kind of den of lions, our own kind of situation where we're stuck in the darkness, we're on the wrong side of a huge stone door, and we can't seem to find any way out, and the only way out, it looks like, is death, destruction, damage, horrible things, you name it. It may not be literal lions for you, but it is certainly just as wrecking and damaging as a lion could be. Perhaps it's a relationship Perhaps it's some circumstance or situation at work. Perhaps it's some circumstance or situation within your family. Perhaps it's some circumstance or situation that is of the physical variety. Some diagnosis that feels like you've been thrown into the pit and the stone has been rolled and there is nothing you can do about it. That's it. It gets the last word. Every one of us is, will or has faced these kinds of difficulties, which is why we need reminders like we sang all night in every song so far, all hitting at that phrase I want you to write down. I'm not alone. You will go before me. You will never leave me. How would it change your lion's den? We haven't even read it, haven't even looked at it yet, but how would it change it? Because you know it. You know what I'm talking about in your own life. How would it change your perspective entering into that situation knowing those three things? You're not alone. He goes before you and steps there first, and he won't leave you when you're in it. Write that down. And if that's the last thing you write down, that's okay. But... Just in case, let's press forward. We're going to read Daniel chapter 6, verses 1 to 18. We're going to look at the first half of this story. And Lord willing, next week we'll finish the thrilling conclusion of not only this story of Daniel in the lion's den, but this series in the book of Daniel in which we're looking at the stories, not the whole book of the Bible. You with me? All right, I'm going to read Daniel chapter 6, verses 1 to 18. It's going to be on the screen. It pleased Darius, Darius is the next king in line in this book, to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom. Satraps are like governors. And then he put three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. 
The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Okay, so imagine, look, Darius just established 120 governors. He's a part of the Persian Empire, and he's set up all these different governors. It's the next empire in line. Daniel is very old at this point. It's yet another king and yet another promotion. Daniel has been there, done that, and he's a long way from home. But this new guy, Darius, has set up 120 governors, and then he's put three, like, vice presidents over them. Daniel's one of them. Now, Daniel, verse 3, so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Right? So he's going to be his right-hand man. At this, the administrators and the satraps got really, really jealous and ticked. Oh, let me keep reading. It didn't say that. They tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel and his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we'll never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has to do something to do with the law of his God, right? So they were going to say, look, if we're going to find some dirt on him, it's got to be on his little religion with his little God, because this dude is squeaky clean, okay? We ain't going to find some decades-long sexual harassment suit. Daniel is squeaky clean. So these administrators and satraps went as a group, I imagine mean girls here, Yes, I've seen Mean Girls. It's not that bad of a movie. You know, they're all going in a group. Pay attention to this in this story. Because it gets at the kind of pressure and persecution that groups can have when they set up the us versus him or us versus them. Verse 6. They went as a group to the king and they said, May King Darius live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors, all of us have agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it can't be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, so Daniel hears about it, what does he do? He went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and he prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. So pause there. A lot has changed, but nothing has changed for Daniel. A lot has changed in the kingdom. First of all, Babylon, gone. Now we have this new kingdom, and they're going to set up something very similar to what Babylon did and said, hey, everybody hush up with your gods and your way and worship this one God, at least for a month. Everything has changed except for Daniel, nothing's changed. He did what he did every single day, and he did it publicly. Verse 11. Then these men went as a group again and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. Maybe that was different. This time, Daniel's asking God for help. Verse 12. 
So they went into the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Hey, did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any god or human being except to you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den? Hey, didn't you do that? And the king answered, "Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, the decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who's one of the exiles from Judah, there's some racial prejudice undertones to that. He pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. Why? Dude, because Daniel is his number one stunner. He's the guy that's going to be the second in command And he just painted himself into a political corner. You with me? So what does he do? You see it? He made every effort until sundown to save him. Well, nothing changes, so I guess he's not as powerful as he thinks he is. Because in verse 15 it says, Then the men went as a group. There's a mean girls again. Or mean boys. Boys are mean too. To King Darius and said to him, Remember your majesty that according to the law of the Medes and the Persians that no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So they're saying, This is a static, can't change it, don't even think about it law. And he's going to be punished for the laws of his God. Verse 16, So the king gave the order and they brought Daniel and they threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God whom you serve continually rescue you. Subtext, because I can't. Verse 17. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and the rings of his nobles, so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Have you noticed how many times it says, it can't be changed, nothing I can do about it, it's written down, shut up, don't even ask, it's done. This is where we leave Daniel and Darius. Then the king returned to his palace, and he spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him. And he could not sleep. This is the word of God for the people of God, and we say, thanks be to God. Daniel has been living in Babylon for decades. He was taken as a young man from his home. His parents were probably long dead. His friends and family are probably long gone. And we've walked with Daniel from hostile situation to hostile situation. And Daniel's friends from hostile situation to hostile situation. And now Daniel is old and he's serving yet another king in this empire that is hostile to the way of God. Daniel will face pressure and persecution from his foreign officials again. And what Daniel's going to face is a choice. He thought that he could retire and play golf and rock and roll. But instead, he has to face this choice. To give in to fear or to live by faith. We face the same choice as we live as kingdom citizens in the kingdoms of the world that are hostile to the way of Jesus. Will we live by fear or will we live by faith? We sang, how long will we sing this song? 
And I'll tell you, when it comes to violent acts of terror and gun violence, that's the song I think about. I remember a conversation I had with a non-Christian friend of mine about five years ago because it was when the Sandy Hook shooting happened. And I was helping him move something because I had a truck. So that's another reason I remember it. It was traumatic for me to have a truck because everybody wanted stuff moved. But it afforded me the opportunity to talk with my non-Christian friend in the wake of this unspeakable and evil and horrible act. And he said, man, what do you do with that? As a Christian, as a pastor, what do you do with that? And the big answer is, well, God is not the author of violence. It doesn't originate with him. He's grieved by violence. And when his kingdom comes in fullness, he will purge the world of all violence. Some of the Old Testament passages notwithstanding, there's ways to think about and pray about and look at that. But what I'm convinced of is this. In the kingdom of God, when it comes in fullness, there will be no violence. So I can tell you unequivocally that God is grieved by violence because when he has his way all day, every day, there will be no violence. So to say that God is pouring out his wrath because of the things that wicked people choose to do with the free will that God has given him, to say that God is somehow working in that and through that and the cause of that, is to say something I'm not comfortable with saying. So the big answer is that God is grieved by this And when his kingdom comes in fullness, he'll purge the world of all violence. The big themes that we've been looking at in Daniel is that his kingdom is always active and eternal. Even when the headlines appear that it's not. God and his kingdom are always active and eternal. Then the other big theme we've been looking at is no matter how dark it looks, the light is always winning. And then, which leads to the ground level... We live as a kingdom alternative in a hostile culture. So I gave him that big theological answer. And he said, no, dude, I want the kingdom alternative answer. What do you do with this kind of unspeakable violence and horror? And so I tried to venture out and to step into this little answer. How do I respond to violence? He asked me, do you have a gun in your house? Would you use it if you did? And I'm telling you, we probably will talk about this in about five minutes. But suffice it to say, I told him what Jesus says about those who live by the sword will die by the sword. And Jesus said things like, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. And Jesus said, turn the other cheek. And here's the thing, Jesus didn't just say it, he lived it. When Jesus was threatened with violence and his homeboy came and used the sword to take the ear off of a guard that was threatening his life, Jesus said, stop, and he healed his attacker. And so maybe I can't wait five minutes, but I've heard two Dallas pastors say this week that in the church we need to be armed and we need to use violence. And here's the problem with violence is that violence begets more violence. And to think that the answer to the solution is to insert more violence into an already violent and hostile situation needs to be seriously thought through. And the second thing is this. Think about would Jesus be packing and use it on his enemy that he told us to love. If we can imagine Jesus going through and working through this kind of means, 
then I think we need to take a fresh look at Jesus. And I think we need to wrestle with these questions because Daniel faced persecution and his example was not to mirror back the hostility that he felt based on his um, uh, ethnic and religious persecution. What he did was he entrusted himself to God who judges justly. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, he says, when Jesus was insulted, he did not insult in return. When they hurled insults at him, when they spat upon him, when they beat him, when they persecuted him, when he was in the garden and they were threatening his life, he didn't take life, he laid it down. And then 1 Peter, he goes on in chapter 2, and he says, and he's left us an example to follow in his steps. And he said that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. And he says, for we all were like sheep running around and killing each other and making hell in this world. But he says, but because of that, he has brought us back to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. And we can trust him because Jesus not only told us these crazy things, he modeled it. Because in 1 Peter, he says, he's left us an example. Because when they spat on him and hurled insults and were violent with him, it says he continued to entrust himself to God who judges justly. So each time violence and pressure and persecution encroaches, it raises two questions for God's people. How do we respond to our enemies? whether they're Daniel's co-workers that are jealous and gossiping, or whether they're Daniel's co-workers who are ready to get him in a situation where he's thrown into a pit of lions, or whether it's you in that situation that you were thinking of earlier with your family, with your workplace, with that situation, with that diagnosis, how do you respond to enemies and evil? The second question is, which Lord Will we let reign in our lives? Jesus or fear? Before we move back into the Daniel story, I'll finish off the story with my friend who wasn't a Christian. And I said, dude, all this stuff that I just told you sounds great in theory. But it requires a relentless trust Every night when we lay our heads down on our pillow and a relentless praying to say, God, would you keep us safe this night? And it requires a relentless and radical trust that God will keep us safe in this space every Saturday at five. And it requires a relentless obedience to sort out the things that Jesus says. And it requires a radical trust that only makes sense if, look, Jesus really is who he says he is. If Jesus really is Lord, and if God really can protect us, then would we let Jesus be our Lord and not fear? So we're back to Daniel, and he's got this plot against him. They're looking to get him out. They want a leg up. We're not quite sure why, but we can assume that it's because they were jealous, and you see them in that group that we were talking about, trying to get him out. So the big question we look at is, how do we respond to our enemies? That's the one that's up there on number one. And first, let me remind you, because it's been a long time since we've talked about this, the word enemy is really only 
a one-way directional word. What do I mean by that? Well, let me tell you. I realize in my life that everything I'm saying is so difficult for me and hard to swallow because there was a time one year ago there was a person in my life that I called an enemy. This is an enemy because this person is antagonizing us. This person is making things very difficult for me and my family. And it is, it's, it's relentless and it's every week and it's just driving us crazy. This person is an enemy. And then this is right around the time where we were preaching on the greatest commandment and about what Jesus talks about when he talks about enemies. And I realized that, wait, it's not two-way, right? Here's what I mean. I can't call someone an enemy even though they might call me an enemy, because this, Jesus has rezoned our neighborhood. When someone said, who's my neighbor? Jesus told a story about the last person a guy would ever want to be his neighbor. He told a story about his enemy, and he said, you're to love your neighbor as yourself. And so what happened is this, Jesus rezones our neighborhood, and he says, no, no, it's no longer us and them. It's let me rezone this thing, and now, whoops, everybody is a neighbor to be loved and not an enemy to be fought. Jesus says, love God with everything you have, and then love your neighbor as yourself. And the problem is that everybody's a neighbor. And I realized that while this person may call me, me an enemy, I no longer have the right to call them an enemy because they are a neighbor to be loved, not an enemy to be fought. So how do we respond to our enemies? How does Daniel respond to his enemies? How do you respond to your enemies, those who would call you an enemy? Think about this. When we were talking and thinking about those lion's den moments that you've experienced in your life, think about a time when somebody was attacking you and pressuring you or gossiping about you and you felt like there were just these groups and these pockets that were doing everything out there and around you to get you damaged, hurt, out. Can anyone think of a time like this where you felt pressure? How did it make you feel? I'll tell you how it made me feel. No, I mean, does somebody want to say something before I do? How does it make you feel when you find out that these people are around here doing this? It made me feel so stinking angry. Am I the only one? I wanted to go back at them. So that feeling made me want to return emotional or physical violence with violence. That's the problem. But the solution is to break the cycle of violence. All that stuff that you're still trying to process that I was saying 10 minutes ago, I think is only possible with a reminder like in verse 12 of chapter of Romans. It's going to take this way of saying, even though this is how I feel, I need to allow God and his kingdom to transform me before I respond Paul says this centuries after Daniel. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So here's the thing. The pattern of this world is when they gossip, you gossip. The pattern of this world is when they attack and slander you, you attack and slander them. The pattern of this world is that when gun violence is out there and we lose an American every 15 minutes to gun violence, we need to stock up and return more violence. 
The pattern of this world is to when you're hit, hit back. The kingdom pattern says, no, when you're hit, turn the other cheek. You can only not conform to the pattern of the world. Daniel could only not conform to the pattern of that world by being transformed by the renewing of your mind. He went upstairs, he opened the windows, and he prayed to God, and he asked God for help. If we are ever going to live the startling and incredible and wild and risky and radical commands of Jesus, it's going to start not when we act, but when we say, Lord, your way, not mine, and you're transformed little by little in the renewing of your mind, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Then you'll see that the Prince of Peace would rather give up his life than take life. Then you will see that we are not to repay evil with evil, but evil with good. Because it's not just Jesus talking about this radical ways of dealing with our enemies. This is the entirety of the New Testament, and it's God's way from day one. We've got to follow Jesus' example and entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly. So what does Daniel do? Rather than retaliate, he prays. Look at verse 10 and 11 with me. When Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. This was business as usual because three times a day, Jews prayed three times a day, morning, afternoon, and evening. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and he prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. These men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. Look at Daniel's example. We've talked about Jesus. We've talked about the New Testament. But Daniel prayed to God publicly and routinely because faith for Daniel, listen and write this down, faith for Daniel, write it down because I didn't make it up and so you know it's good. Faith for Daniel is not believing in spite of evidence but obedience in spite of consequences. Faith for Daniel is not believing in spite of evidence, although there is some shade of faith in there, but obedience in spite of consequences. I didn't make it up. Aaron Sarkis sent it to me a long time ago. He's not here tonight. We'll have to ask him. I think it was a preacher named Alistair Begg that did this. Faith for Daniel is not believing in spite of evidence, but obedience in spite of consequences. Is this what Daniel did? This is what it looks like to respond to our enemies. It doesn't make sense, but I'm going to be obedient despite the consequences because I believe that your way is the best way and your kingdom will come if I surrender to your will. Daniel knew of the law, but he still resisted. Daniel continued to live God's way in spite of persecution. And the line forms to the left of the thousands of Christians in the Middle East and Southeast Asia and other parts of Latin America and in parts of Northern Africa of people who continue to live God's way in spite of persecution. And the line forms to the left of every one of them who would choose to follow Jesus' way in the face of violence. And it begs the question, when the church in Iraq, 
is being destroyed by ISIS, do we still see the kingdom at work? Do we still see the light winning? And the answer is yes. Did we see the light winning in China when the underground churches would gather at different times during the day so that they wouldn't get the government looking and watching so they wouldn't see 12 people walking into a house at the same time. They'd see one there and then 30 minutes later the next and the next. And when they all gathered together in groups no larger than our neighborhood groups, they would get down and they wouldn't sing and have lights in a band. What they would do is they would whisper songs. It wasn't as public as Daniel, but it was no less bold and rooted in obedience in spite of consequences. They would whisper songs of praise. And I love that in the text, in the story, in verse 10, it says that Daniel opened his windows and he faced Jerusalem. Do y'all know that Jerusalem was long gone? Daniel is old. It was sacked in the very first Verse of chapter 1 of Daniel. Then Daniel got kidnapped to Babylon. Then 10 years later, the temple, done. Everybody else killed or taken. But Daniel still opened up to the rubble heap that was his city. Because it remembered that this time may be fraught with violence and hostility. But one day God will return and rebuild his holy city. Hello? Hello? And he opened it up when everything was falling down again. And he did what he did every day because he couldn't have done anything else. Because I believe he had been formed in those spaces of prayer. And what it says is he thanked God. And we see Christians in North Africa thanking God because they've been counted worthy to suffer for the sake of the gospel. And we look and shake our heads and rub our eyes in America and say, what? But he still has reasons to praise God. Amy was talking about our calling earlier. She placed some flyers here in the baskets, more about the ministry that you will, Lord willing, be giving to in these four weeks of Advent. And on Wednesdays, I've been going up there in the mornings and I've been singing songs and leading worship. And I've felt like such a doof because I'm sitting here and I'm, I'm like singing these Praise Jesus songs when they've just been on the street and they've been fearing for their lives and they come in and they're just, what do you say? Well, this is some arrogance and ignorance on my part because what I see is homeless people who with their arms outstretched, praising and singing and thanking God. And they've taught me that there is always a reason to sing. There is always reason to open up the window, even if things aren't good now. You look to the holy city and wait for God's kingdom to come in fullness. And you look for the little ways in which it's here today. Because they're going to get their daily bread and they're inside a safe place. And they're going to be able to sing praises to God and have a hot cup of coffee. But then look, Daniel doesn't diminish how difficult a situation is. Because then it says they saw him and he was asking God for help. And this is so crazy because he was still obeying God and he knew he'd get thrown into the lion's den because of it. The dude opened his dadgum windows, man. You should have been like the Chinese people whispering your songs in your house. But he still is part of this rhythm. Because I think 
of John 15, when Jesus says to his disciples that are about to face persecution and they're about to be without Jesus in the flesh, and John 15 records the words that Jesus said that says, look, even though I'm going, you can abide in me as I abide in you. And then he says, because apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. So I think Daniel said, if I'm gonna have any shot, I need to ask God for help and abide in him. Because apart from him, I can do nothing. One thing that we'd like to do as a church this January, it's hard to believe that we're already approaching a new year. Advent is the church's New Year's Eve, right? It's a lot less fun and rocking, although we had a pretty sweet New Year's Eve. Was it last year? Still don't tell Freeman Heights that we like danced and like to Bruno Mars and stuff in there. The edited versions. But the church... Y'all know, I spent, because it's been like a real heavy sermon. I've been like really dreading this because it's been eating my lunch. And how do we do this, Jesus? I just got to say this. That week, last year, for this party, we had like bounce houses and Carla did this awesome, like decorated it. Instead of preparing a sermon, I spent four hours on a playlist because I poured through every lyric to make sure that my little girls weren't going to come home singing some Prince song that got earwormed into their head. So I spent, y'all paid me that week to put together a playlist for a church party for New Year's Eve. Why am I talking about this? Because this new year we're going to do things differently. (laughs) And we are going to try something to help equip you and to get you thinking about your own rhythm of life. Daniel prayed three times a day, and it even hit during his time of persecution. And so what we're going to do is you're going to see a revamped kind of member covenant that's going to look more like a partnership. I want to partner with this community with, in, in humility and by God's help for the next year to serve and build community and love our neighbor together. And then you're going to get this little document where you can prayerfully consider this year while everybody else is making these awesome New Year's resolutions, would I take a moment to think, you know, if I abide in him and he abides in me, apart from him I can do nothing, so let me create a rhythm or a schedule of life that can help get me into a place of abiding. Here's what you're going to see and you're going to hear for the whole month of January. Please give yourself grace and please make it realistic repeatable, and something that's renewing. Something that won't drag you down, but that will be life-giving. I think for Daniel, his three times of prayer fit with his work schedule, and it was something that he could do every day, and it maybe didn't take 40 hours. And so for us, we can learn from Daniel. How do we even dream of following Jesus when persecution and, and the hard times and the lion's dens come? I think it's going to be tethered to those moments where we've been trained and formed in stillness and rest, even in the midst of our real, actual lives. You know what burdens me for you? Is that you wake up so early and you start sprinting. And then what breaks my heart is that when we go to lunch, you feel some shade of guilt that you didn't wake up at 4 a.m. and pray for eight hours. And I just believe that God is longing to be gracious with you and longing to meet with you, even if it's a few minutes for Daniel at morning, noon, and night. Do y'all know that I have an app on my phone that dings and it says it's time for morning prayer? 
It's time for afternoon prayer. It's time for evening prayer. And it's an app that you can download. Talk to me after the service, and I'll show it to you. And it can even remind you because we can forget, can't we? But I believe that Daniel was able to face his enemies and do these incredible things. And it was not just believing in spite of evidence, but that obedience and that rhythm in spite of the consequences. And finally, we see that Daniel gets thrown into the lion's den. Because here's the deal. All the prayer and Bible and church in the world won't won't prevent you from the real life. But it can prepare you for real life. Let me say that again because I messed it up. All the prayer and Bible study and scripture and service and worship cannot preclude you or prevent you from entering into the real hard, crappy stuff of life. But it can prepare you and it can remind you that you're not alone and that he goes before you and he'll never leave you and he will renew all things. Because faith is a relationship of trust, not just a certainty of belief. Faith is a relationship of each step, even in the darkness, learning that God's heart is for you, his love is always with you, and it's learning that you can trust him. And what do I mean it's not just a certainty of belief? Let me ask you this question as we close. Did Daniel know, did Daniel know beyond a shadow of a doubt the lions wouldn't kill him. I don't think he did at all. And we see at the end of this story that Darius was freaking out because he was powerless to help him, and he was about to lose his number one guy, right-hand man, and he was freaking out, and it says Darius couldn't sleep. Do you think that Daniel could sleep? I bet not. Because all the trust in the world still carries with it this sense of, God, I'm trusting you, but I'm also waiting, and I'm praying. But that's where that theme is. When we're on the wrong side of the stone, when we're in that period of darkness, when you feel like the darkness is winning, and I tell you, I could not read this this week without thinking of Jesus and his lifeless body in the tomb on Saturday. Because every one of his disciples had this relationship of trust with Jesus, but I don't think they had a certainty of belief that he was going to come out the other side. The whole New Testament speaks to that uncertainty. Until certainly they believed and saw that Jesus was raised, and God gets the last word. Not the lions, not the darkness, not death. So how do we keep going when we're on the wrong side of that stone that's sealed and shut? We remember that no matter how dark it looks, the light is always winning. And we pray like Daniel, and we entrust ourselves like Jesus, and we turn the other cheek when the persecution comes, and we pray for those who persecute us because it will transform our minds, and we bless the ones who persecute us because it might change their lives, and we entrust ourselves and follow Jesus even when it doesn't make sense. Because he gets the last word, not our lion's dens. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, we are so grateful for the stories of men and women 
who have gone before us, who have borne witness to the fact that you will never leave us nor forsake us. We thank you for the testimonies of those in our community who have been on the wrong end of the stone in the lion's den, yet they've come out the other side by your power because the same power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead is alive and well in us, your church. So we ask, Lord, that we would lean into the Holy Spirit, that we would yield ourselves to him, that we would resolve even now before the persecution comes, that we would follow him and abide in you, Jesus even when it doesn't make sense, because apart from you, we can do nothing. So we resolve right now, Lord. Would you help us deal with this violence? Would you help us sort through these difficult questions and these difficult commands? Would you help us now resign to follow you? Would you help us, Lord, in those circumstances and situations that seem too difficult? Would you give us peace and give us grace to make peace? We pray all this in the strong name of Jesus, our King. Amen. Let us receive the benediction. Now, may the peace of God go with you wherever you may go. May he walk beside you in the good times and the bad times, always present. Go in peace and love. May you seek him in all that you do, all that you say, and all that you think. Go in his peace and in his love.